If you look up any list of the greatest films of all time, always right there at the top is an old movie called Citizen Kane. It was made in 1941. You need to see it just to see what all the fuss is about, if nothing else. It's really a great movie. It's, it was written and directed and starred in by Orson Welles when he was a younger man. And the movie is about a, a man named Charles Foster Kane who rises to great wealth and power and fame uh, through, uh, through the newspaper business. He owns a newspaper. And he's not just rich and famous, he's also very brash and arrogant. But there's this scene in the middle of the movie where he and his wife are in their opulent mansion together and they're having an argument. And behind them is the fireplace, and the fireplace is, has got a roaring fire in it. But they're having this conversation, and then in the middle of the conversation, Charles walks over to stand in front of the fireplace to warm himself. And it's at that point that we realize just how massive that thing is. That fireplace, it's got to be 10 feet tall, 15 feet wide. It totally dwarfs him, and it's symbolic. There's a symbol right there in that moment that Charles Foster Kane, no matter how great and rich and powerful, how much larger than life he seemed to be, he would one day be totally consumed, that the fire would burn it all away. And it was inevitable for him. Now, that's exactly how the movie ends. He dies alone, and all of his stuff, all of his wealth becomes junk, sold off at auction or thrown into the fire. Well, Charles Foster Kane in 1941 gave us a good glimpse of something that Solomon, King Solomon, has actually been telling us for the better part of 3,000 years. That life is meaningless apart from God. A life lived only for the self, only for the here and now, for the temporary and not the eternal, Solomon tells us, is a life lived under the sun. And that's the name of our little series we've spent the last four weeks on. Today's our last day to look at it. But this concept of under the sun, it's, it's, something, it's, a, it's a phrase that Solomon invents to describe a life, a world, without regard for God. The life that, that the majority of the world is presently living that many of us have found ourselves in at one time or another. And frankly, that even as a believer in God, even as a Christian, we can fall into this same trap. To live only for the here and now and not for eternity. And Solomon tells us in very plain language, if you read chapters 1 and 2 of this book, that this, this is a meaningless exercise. He calls it vanity. He calls it futility. He says it's like chasing after the wind. Now, that's, of course, a very depressing thought, but what Solomon is actually doing is liberating us. He's liberating us by showing us what life really is if God is not part of the picture. If God is somewhere far off and aloof, or if I try to live as if I'm the captain of my own life and destiny, then Solomon says, I'll forever be chasing after the wind. I can feel the wind. I know it's there, but I can never harness it. I can never take hold of it. And that's what life is like without God. And so here in our, in our fourth and final week, we're, we're, we're going to look at, we've been looking at the particulars. Back in chapter 1, Solomon spends his entire time making the case for life in general. That if you live your life without regard for God, then in the end, your life will amount to nothing at all. No matter how great you become, no matter how much you achieve, no matter how much you experience, no matter how much you chase after, in the end, it all goes into the same vacuum. Well, in chapter 2, he starts to get into the specifics, the things that we typically look for when it comes to our search for meaning, our search for value, significance, identity. He points to three things. We first looked at the pursuit of pleasure. Then we looked last week at the pursuit of wisdom. 
Well, today we're going to finish up with Solomon's last concern, the futility of work. He's going to address work. Um, y'all, work is, is such an important aspect of life. Uh, it's, it's hard to actually talk about life without talking about work. It's so, it's so ingrained in who we are and what we're about. It's why when you, when you encounter someone new, you meet someone new, maybe for the first time, very early in that conversation, we always ask the same question. You know what it is? What do you do? What do you do for a living? Right? Now, that's good for small talk, of course, but it's also, it, it, it shows us how deeply we connect our work to our identity. Because what you do is going to tell me a lot about who you are, what you value, and how you choose to live. So, so for, uh, for our purposes today, I know not everybody works in a vocation that draws a salary, but listen, whether you're an employer or an employee, whether you're a full-time student or a stay-at-home parent, we know what work is. We know that we give our lives to a task that demands a great deal from us, and we consider that all under the same umbrella of work. Okay? So before we get into the scripture, before we look at Ecclesiastes 2, I want to encourage us to know this, to, to be reminded of this. That when God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, he gave them work to do before sin entered the world. That God told Adam and Eve, you will cultivate the garden, you will rule over my good creation, and that that was an entirely good thing all by itself. That sin came after that. So work is a good idea, a good creation of God that we are meant to engage in. Right? It's part of how God intended life to work. Well, the problem, of course, is that sin did come into the world. And one of the very first things God mentioned in the curse of Genesis 3 was work. That the ground was going to fight back against Adam. And it was going to grow thorns and thistles. And the sweat of his brow would define all of his labor. And so for us, we recognize work may be a very good thing, and certainly at times it feels good. It feels meaningful. It feels satisfying. But we know, of course, that work at the very same time, even if it's good, even if we're working in a dream job, we know it can be frustrating, that it can feel unfair, that it can be unsatisfying, and frankly, it can even be unjust. There's a lot of labor in the world that is unjust, that does not fall under God's good creation. We've been corrupted by sin, plain and simple. Everything we do has been touched by sin. Work is no exception. Now, Solomon was not so much concerned with what I just talked about. Solomon wasn't concerned about the labor itself so much as he was worried about what the outcome of his labor would be. And that's where we pick up. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. He comes to a conclusion here. He says, Thus, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. So you, you, you see Solomon's concern here. What happens if I spend my whole life working hard, working wisely, building up, saving up, investing well, and then I die. I mean, what then? What's going to happen to all my labor? What's going to happen to my wealth? Is my hard work going to carry on or is it going to disappear? Is all that I did, it, will it be valued or is it going to be discarded and laughed at? Is, is my stuff, my effort, is it going to fall into the hands of a wise person or a fool? Solomon was vexed by this because he knew he couldn't control the outcome. And the truth is, if you, if you read Solomon's story, if you read through the book of the Kings, Solomon, of course, did die. 
And the kingdom was handed off to his only son, a man named Rehoboam. Well, guess what? Rehoboam was an evil fool who brought calamity upon Israel. Every good thing that Solomon had done, Rehoboam undid, and Solomon couldn't do anything about it. He was dead. He was buried. He had no control. And that thought, that thought gnawed at Solomon, even while he was alive, because he knew that in the end he would have no say, he would have no control in the outcome, the fruit of all his work. Now, I don't know if that, if that thought has ever entered your mind, but it is a troubling thought. Even if you feel good about the future and the hands that you'll hand your, your stuff off to, you can't really know. Y'all, y'all know who Paul Harvey was? Paul Harvey, great radio personality, so smart, so funny. He would make commentary on, on the issues of the day at times. And back in 2002, Paul Harvey commented on the death of the great Ted Williams. Ted Williams was a Hall of Fame baseball player, one of the best that ever played. And when Ted Williams died, his grown children became embroiled in this horrible legal battle over his estate. They fought over Ted's estate, over his memorabilia, who was going to get all his autographed bats. His children even had his body frozen so that his DNA might be preserved. And they were fighting over who got the rights to his frozen body. Now, Paul Harvey's talking about this. He says, you know, you got his children. They're fighting over all this stuff. They're fighting over his DNA. But after looking at Ted's kids, who wants his DNA? Right? I mean, what are they fighting for? What are they trying to preserve here? Look at the outcome. Look at who he handed all this stuff off to. Y'all, here's the truth. Every single one of us is going to leave this life. We're going to leave our estate, our stuff, our accomplishments. It gets left behind. We can't take any of it with us. And there are no guarantees as to what's going to come of it. You think, well, yeah, but, you know, my children are wise. I've got a plan. But, yeah, for how long? For how long? How long will it make any difference? All the effort, all the accruing, all the investing, all the inheritance we leave behind. We don't know. We'll We'll be dead and gone. Solomon says it won't matter. And he says this too is vanity. If this life under the sun is all there is, then it's just vanity. Therefore, look at verse 20. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. So all of his work, our work, is, it's, it's handed off, Solomon says, to those who did not work for it. If, I, if I've given my life uh, to an end goal, right, all that I've given my life to, Solomon says, it's going to go into the hands of, of someone who surely won't appreciate it the same way I did. That they, they didn't have to act wisely. They didn't have to work hard. They didn't have to perfect the skills that I perfected, right? They just happened to be in the right place at the right time. They just happened to be my offspring, right? That's his, that's his concern. And Solomon says, this is a great evil. Now, what he probably means there by great evil is that it's, it's unfair and maybe even unjust. Unjust that in the end, I'm the one who did all of this and I don't get to live in the perpetual fruit and enjoyment of it. I've got to hand it off and I'm gone, right? That's unjust. I mean, you think, think about it. Imagine a woman who spends her whole life working, sharpening her skills, uh, countless hours in meetings and reviews, carrying all the stress and the weight of the burdens of those responsibilities, only in the end to have to let it go with no idea 
as to whether it will carry on or not, whether it will be continued on the way that she had built it, or whether it will be dismissed and forgotten, not knowing if her legacy is going to mean anything at all. That's not fair. That's Solomon's point. But that's life under the sun. That's simple reality. Now look at verse 22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. Because all his days, verse 23, all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. And this too is vanity. You know what he's saying here? Solomon says, and this may feel like kind of a controversial statement. You may not agree with this. But Solomon says, in the end, no one can really truly enjoy their work. Not really. Uh, You can never really truly feel productive. You can never be ultimately satisfied. The laborer can never find ultimate rest because in the end, we'll never know the value of what we've actually produced. In the end, we'll never be able to enjoy the fruit of what we produced. We'll die and it will leave out from our control. And we'll have no control then over the outcome. Um, you say, well, I don't agree with that. That's, that. And that's okay. Work can be enjoyed now. We're going to talk about that too. But you, you, you understand Solomon's point? Can I ever really rest? Can I ever really be satisfied in my labor if I know that in the end I'll lose it? If I know in the end I can't take it with me? Um, there's a man named Leonard Wolf. Leonard Wolf was a, a, a very famous and popular British writer and political commentator. His wife was Virginia Woolf, the author. He lived in the, in the early part of the last century, and toward the end of his life, he wrote a, uh, an autobiography, maybe late 60s, before he died. He wrote uh, a book where he reflected on his own life, and he came to a really uh, kind of a startling confession. Uh, here's what Leonard Wolf said. When I look at the whole of my career, I can see clearly that I achieved practically nothing. In all, I must have ground through between 150,000 hours and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Because when I look at the state of things, I know that the world would be exactly the same if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. Now, surely Leonard Wolf is exaggerating. Surely his, his life and his work made some difference, right? But you, you see what he's saying? He's, he's simply echoing Solomon. He's echoing the despair of Solomon. What does a man get in all his labor and in his striving under the sun? The answer is ultimately nothing. And, and this is where maybe it, it would hit home for us. It's possible that some of y'all in this room, you're either right on the cusp of retirement age or you're post-retirement, and some of these questions hit home a little more... Um, are a little more weighty than others. I mean, you think about, for you, the financial piece is very real. All that I've built up, who will I hand it off to? How will it be managed? That's a legitimate concern. Or maybe the question is like Solomon. The question is about legacy. All that I've worked for, will it be valued? Will it be continued on after me? Or will it disappear, in a sense, like it never happened? Those are important questions. But for most of us in this room, my guess is that you're not so much thinking about the end as you're thinking about the present. And y'all, this is a very, very common, natural way to think, um, or a question we might ask, that, that, that we all look at our, our work, we look at our state in life, and we think, does this have meaning today? 
I mean, ultimately, that's, that's Solomon's third question. That's his concern. What do I get for all my labor? Is what I'm doing making any difference? Is it meaningful? That is the, that's the, the million-dollar question in our present day and culture. A lot of people, especially in the younger generations, if work doesn't feel meaningful, then it's not worth doing at all. And that's become increasingly the, the feeling toward work and career and vocation. So does my work have meaning? I'm sure that you have at least asked yourself internally that question. And if you've come to the conclusion that it doesn't, that's, that can be a very despairing feeling, right? But, but let's be clear about what exactly we're asking. Because really there are two questions. One is, is a little bit more surface level and one's a little deeper. Uh, am I, when I look at my work, what I get to do, Am I asking the question, is my work meaningful? Or am I asking the question, does my work give me meaning? Because that's not the same question. I want you to think about this. Is your work, or or your work as a full-time student, or your work at home with your children, is it meaningful? Most certainly it is. Almost certainly it is. That work is meaningful. And it's probably meaningful in ways that we don't always think about. I mean, obviously, it provides for you. It provides for your family. It serves the social and economic good. It does others good because you work. It develops and refines skills. That's a good thing. It provides goods and services to others. It meets legitimate needs that others have. Uh, it, it, your work probably connects you to people in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be. And those are all good things. Those are meaningful things, right? But that's not the question most of us are asking. Most of us, when we look at our work, when we survey our life, we're asking the second question, the deeper question, does this give me meaning? And how do we know we're asking that question? How how do you know that you're looking to your work for a deeper meaning, for a deeper significance and value? Well, uh, I, I got a few diagnostic questions here. These are questions that I have failed on uh, over the course of time, every single one of them. So I'm hoping that maybe they'll resonate uh, with you too. I want you to think about what you do. And then I want you to overlay these questions on top here. Ask yourself these questions. Do I feel my work is meaningful only if I'm being affirmed, applauded, or awarded for it? Do I feel meaningful in my work only if I'm noticed? Am I always feeling envious toward people who seem to be higher up the ladder, more successful than me? Am I terrified of failure in my work? Am I scared of even making a mistake? Uh, Does one word of criticism crush me when it comes to my work? I can't handle it. Do I tend to overwork because I associate busyness with success, busyness with significance? Do I always find myself looking around for a better opportunity? More money, more prestige, always looking, always wondering if something better's out there. Do I look down on people who I don't consider as driven and successful as I am? Now, that's not a complete list, but we, when we ask ourselves questions like that, we're identifying a root in our heart. That if I answer yes, really, to any of those, those might be for us indicators that I'm not just enjoying meaningful work, but that I'm seeking my identity in my work. And therefore, I'm looking to work for something that it can't actually provide for me. Now, I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle on at least one of those points. And I told you, I I failed on all of them, at least at some point. 
But let's hear the words of Solomon again. If I'm seeking my identity, my significance, my value, my meaning in what I do, hear these words again. This is verse 22. What does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Now I said a minute ago you might not agree with that statement, but I want you to think about it in terms of seeking meaning, seeking identity, if you're trying to find your sense of self in what you do, then you can never rest. You're always going to be wrought with anxiety. Why? Because your life depends on your work, on your productivity, on your success, on your applause that you might receive, on your awards, on your promotion. And therefore, you're always tied deeply into that thing, and that thing can't fail. I can't fail because it's who I am. And therefore, it is painful. It's, an, it's a grievous thing. We can never rest. Isn't that true? We'll never really know if we're enough because we're placing the weight of our identity on what we do. So listen, y'all, if, if all work is temporary, if all labor is fleeting, if work provides no true meaning, and even deeper than that, if our idolatry of work is actually sin... It's not just a feeling of emptiness. It is a rejection of God to put work in the place of him. If all those things are true, if Solomon laments them, if we're honest enough to see the world for what it really is, and we know that in the end none of it will matter, where do we turn now? Well, let's turn to Romans 4. That's easy enough. If you've got a Bible and you're really quick with it, you can go to Romans chapter 4. Um, Let's talk about the antidote here. Lord knows we don't need to stop where we're at. We've got to solve this problem. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is talking about work, but it's work of a different sort. He's talking about the human desire to work for God's acceptance. It's spiritual work. To do religious things, spiritual things, in order to earn God's favor. Uh, All human beings have this inborn, this innate desire to work for righteousness. And that's what Paul wants to address here in Romans 4, because Paul's point is that you can't. You can't work for righteousness. You can't earn God's acceptance and favor. And here's how he phrases it. This is Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Such a great scripture. He says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Now this is a fundamental principle for life. If you work for anything, anything, you receive a wage, a payment, for that work. It's not a favor. It's not a gift. You earned it. You worked for it, right? But look at verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, Paul obviously is making a spiritual point here, that your standing before God is not ultimately your moral record, not your effort, your striving. That gets you nowhere. You can't work for God's righteousness. And in fact, Paul says it's, it's exactly the opposite, that our sin makes us unrighteous, ungodly. There's nothing we can do about that. The, the illustration I, I like to use periodically is the ladder that we all try to climb. We're trying to climb a ladder up to God. The Bible says there is no such ladder because even on our best day, we couldn't climb one anyway. We are separated from God because of our sin. So, to the person who gives up working, to the person who forsakes earning and instead puts their trust in Jesus, 
Jesus who justifies the ungodly, her faith, his faith, is counted as righteousness. Y'all, that means that God takes his perfect righteousness, his perfect moral record, and he puts it into your account as if you earned it, as if you worked for it and achieved it, although you never could. It's yours now. Not by working, not by striving, but by receiving that righteousness as a gift of grace. So Paul says we become Christians through faith, not through striving, not through earning, not through working, to the one who does not work, but believes. That person is now counted righteousness. That's how you receive life. Okay, well, you say that's a great spiritual lesson, Kyle, but aren't we talking about real work? Aren't we talking about the real world here? But y'all, it's, if, we, if we miss the connection between the two, then we miss everything. Right? I, w- I want to show you, hopefully in a, in a very short form here, how the two connect. Y'all, if, if the gospel of Jesus is true, if you and I receive life and grace in the name of Jesus Christ, not by our effort, not by our work, but by his gift then all of Solomon's concerns in Ecclesiastes 2 are answered. All of them. We looked at three chiefly. Let's let's look back at them again here. Remember Solomon's first problem. I'm going to die, and I'm going to have to hand off everything I've done, not knowing, not controlling what's going to come of it. It's a legitimate concern. But in Christ, in Christ, we know that death is not the end for us. That this life under the sun is not all that there is. And because death is not the end, that can change our entire perspective, not just on the afterlife, but on the present life. How did Jesus tell us uh, the way we're supposed to live? There are a lot of places in the Gospels we could point to. There's one that's very famous that you probably know. You may even have it memorized without realizing it. How Jesus told us to live, how he instructed us to live. He said, do not build up for yourselves treasures on earth. You know this verse? where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But do what instead? He says, store up instead treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where neither thieves break in nor steal, right? An uncorrupted, untouched, unspoiled treasure. Because it's not a treasure built merely on this life alone, it's a treasure built for eternity. Now listen, you can't stop the fact that you're going to die. And frankly, you will have no control even then over your estate and your work and all your efforts. You may hand it off to very wise children who turn around and gamble it away. You won't have anything to do with it. But if this life is not all there is, then we're not storing up for this life only. And in fact, Jesus said, if you store up for this life only, it will certainly be lost. But there is a true treasure, not the treasure we leave behind, but the one we take with us. And we don't have to worry about what happens to it because it is reserved for us in heaven. If your life is found in Jesus, the best is yet to come. What you leave behind won't matter at all. Well, Solomon's second problem was about his legacy, right? Not just the stuff, but his legacy. What kind of legacy remains when all our work is done? But y'all understand this. Uh, we, We value legacy because that's a reflection of how you live. That's a good thing. But your legacy is not merely the sum of your earthly labors. And some of us really need to hear this more than others today. Because we live in a world that is, is of course, human-centered. And when we take a human approach to life, merely human, merely secular, merely under the sun, we come to conclusions that God does not come to. And one that we come to 
uh, is not a surprise to any of us in terms of how we esteem work. Isn't it true that we esteem CEOs over janitors from a human perspective? Isn't it true that we esteem executives over homemakers? But God does not. God does not. And the fact that we esteem things that way shows, I think, a lot of times that we don't have the perspective of God because Jesus did not come simply to improve our pursuit of human achievement, to make us better people or more successful people. Jesus came that he might give us an identity that does not depend on our human achievement and on our legacy. That we have a sense of self in Christ that does not depend on our being remembered and our being celebrated after we're gone. Most people will not be celebrated. Most people did not achieve greatness that the world would esteem. But God esteems us. On a totally different plane, he esteems us in Christ. And therefore, we live not for our own acclaim and our own legacy. We live for God's glory and God's pleasure. That's how Paul could make such a radical statement in the book of Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now that makes no sense if we're simply living for the temporary, if we're trying to accumulate goods and and legacy under the sun, then it makes no sense that we would live for Christ instead. But to know him is to have a fundamental change to our identity. What matters most to us is different now, because we know Christ. And y'all, that is a legacy that we leave behind. Better than anything else you can ever produce with your hands is the legacy of loving and following Jesus Christ, making him known. But see, that's a legacy you also get to take with you. That's treasure in heaven. It's not left into the hands of others who may disregard it. It's stored up by the very power of God. It's eternal. And then lastly, remember Solomon's third problem? He lamented that work under the sun gives us no ultimate meaning, right? Your work under the sun can't solve your deepest problems. It can't give you true rest. But again, again, in Christ, by faith in Christ, we do rest. We can rest because we rest on his work, his finished work, not on our work. Whether it be spiritual work or otherwise, we don't rest on our work, on our achievements, on our accomplishments. We place our identity in him, not in what we achieve. And I realize that's easier said than done, but that's the, that's the implication of the gospel. If I trust in Jesus Christ, then I trust him fully, not just for my future salvation in heaven one day, but for every single thing that matters here on earth as well. It's all built on Jesus Christ. It all orbits around him. And therefore, listen, if I believe that down to the depths of my heart, I'm in Christ. He is my identity. He is my significance. In him, I find my meaning then see, now I, we, you, you can do meaningful work without requiring meaning from your work. Because that problem's already been solved. From the deepest part of your heart, you have found yourself, your sense of life, your your very uh, uh, sense of meaning and identity, you found it in Christ, and therefore you're not searching for it in the world, whether it be in pleasure or wisdom or today in work. We don't have to find it there. Not just because it's not there to find, that's what Solomon tells us, but then in Christ, we don't have to. All our deepest needs have been met by his grace. That's why, listen, when Paul instructs Christians on how to work, real world work, back in Colossians 3, 
He says, whatever you do, right, whether CEO or janitor, whether homemaker, student, anywhere in between, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you do, whatever it is, he says, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord and not for men, knowing that it is from the Lord that you receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Y'all, what a liberating thing. And it's so hard for us to grasp because our nature demands that work give us meaning, that work become our identity. For some of us, it is a very strong uh, pull in your life, I know. But to actually work, to do the work, not to forsake the work, not to become lazy and indifferent toward it, no, but to actually do it with all our heart because we're doing it ultimately for Christ and not for people, that will set you free. That will set you free. Because in the moments when work is very difficult, and frustrating, and maybe seems, feels meaningless, and maybe you work hard for something that ends up getting lost or outdone, right? That doesn't steal away the meaning in your life. It doesn't make you less than somehow, because you are completely full in Jesus Christ. It is him that you serve. Y'all, there's a, um, I heard uh, Scott Sauls, a pastor in Nashville, make this uh, comment. Um, there's a man with a last name Strong. If you've ever been to a Christian bookstore, you maybe have seen Strong's Concordance. It's about this thick. A man who spent his entire life working up the Hebrew and Greek word definitions and connections and placing every connection in the Bible and how they meet together. An incredible work, a wonderful book. He spent his entire life working on that. But now in the digital age, the truth is that a seven-year-old can do it all in less than 10 minutes with a computer. An entire life's work. If Strong, and I I don't know him, of course, I assume that this is the case, if Strong found his meaning in Christ, then it's irrelevant that he's been outdone by the digital age, isn't it? What does he care? But if our work defines us, then we we can never rest. That's That's why Christ saves us, not just to save us from our sin, not just to get us to heaven, but to give us rest in this life that my entire sense of self is built on him and not what I must earn from him or from anyone else. Y'all, we've spent the last four weeks now looking at Ecclesiastes, not the whole book, but just a section here, considering the message that Solomon has for us. On its own, just taking it for what it is, it's a very grim and despairing message that under the sun, all of life is meaningless, all of it. Pleasure and wisdom and work, it's all meaningless. But that's only true under the sun. That's only true under the sun. It's only true apart from God. Jesus has the divine power to redeem life. Life as we know it, Life eternal, but also every aspect of life. I want you to think, even if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, the things that we've looked at, pleasure and wisdom and work, those things were present in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. The pleasure of the senses Adam and Eve enjoyed for themselves. Wisdom, they walked with God in the Garden. They knew God. They had wisdom. And God gave them good, meaningful work to do, right? Sin has corrupted those things, but in Christ they can be redeemed. We can know what true pleasure is. We can have true wisdom. We can have meaningful work, but not on its own terms. Only by knowing Jesus Christ can those things be redeemed. Can we have life in his name? If, listen, if, if, you, if you find in yourself a deficit, if you find in yourself a deep disenchantment with life, with work, with money, with your pursuits, if you've gotten to the end of the rainbow, perhaps, and found that there was nothing there for you, right? 
All of us at some point will come to terms with that reality. That's life under the sun. But that is not the life we're relegated to. There is a life, a world beyond the sun. A life that has been purchased for us by the gracious love of God through his son, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, if we find in this world a desire for something that the world cannot satisfy, the only explanation is that we were made for another world. That's the whole point of this book. That in our despair under the sun, we find life beyond it. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That we might not perish, that we might not despair, that we might not find meaningless at the end of the rainbow, meaninglessness, but that we might find life in him by faith. And my prayer today is that that is the gift that you receive. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we have... um, I pray that that for for us this morning, we would come to um, a decisive conclusion. um, That so often what we're looking for in our work It simply isn't there. It's not meant to be. Uh, And Lord, I I trust that in this room, starting with me, starting with the person behind the microphone right here, um, so much of my insecurity comes from what what I'm trying to find in my work. Um, So much of my idolatry and my sin comes from trying to be enough and produce enough and and be seen as somebody in the eyes of others because of what I might produce with my hands. And and Lord, as a result, I'm I'm often very fragile and very irritable and very sad um, because it it never seems to, to come through. It never seems to satisfy Lord, I, I trust that that's not just me. And, and where we sit in this room right now, I pray that, that, Lord, you would decisively confirm in our hearts, Lord, convince us that what Solomon says is true, that we will not find it in our vocation, in our earning potential, in our achievements, in our grades, um, in our ability to... to um, keep an ordered home and produce nice, happy children. We're not going to find our identity there. That in the end, it's, it's vanity. But Lord, there is a grace that, that, that is not earned. There's a grace that we don't work for that can change our perspective on everything. Lord, would you show us that grace, maybe in fresh ways this morning? Something we couldn't earn? Something that by... According to your love, we don't have to earn, but we simply believe in him who justifies the ungodly. And Father, if that's true, let it change where we're seeking um, life. If it's in pleasure or wisdom or work, Lord, show us that Christ is, uh, is our fixation. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our brother. Christ is our fellow heir of all the riches and inheritance, Lord, that you have for those who love you. We lack for nothing that our vocation can provide. Um, Father, for those of us who who maybe are, are just slowly turning that corner today,
Father, let it change how we practically live. Uh, let, us, let us work hard. Let us work with joy. Let us work and, and be satisfied with that work. Um, because we found life in Christ and we are serving him, not just men, not just ourselves. Uh, Father, we need this. We desperately need this. And so, Lord, give us a, a clear picture of the wonderful cross of Jesus Christ who died not just to get us to heaven, but who died to be the very anchor for everything in our lives. That we look to nothing else now, but we look to him for everything. Uh, may it be true for us in his name. Amen.